The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Hello, and welcome to the Paul Leslie Hour. Thank you for tuning in. Before we get into the interview, I would be honored if you would consider going to thepaulleslie.com and clicking support the show. There are quite a number of things I want to accomplish with the Paul Leslie Hour, and you can help me get more of these interviews out there to the masses. It only takes a moment, and it makes a world of difference. Last but not least, tell someone about the Paul Leslie Hour. Let them know in whatever way you can. And now let's get into the interview. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you, I'm deliriously happy to be talking to Ray Dorset. He is the front man of Mungo Jerry. Oh, I am Mungo Jerry. I, I have to correct you on that. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I've been Mungo Jerry since uh, 1972, beginning of 1972, because when I recorded in the summertime, there were four of us, and the collective name of the four people that recorded in the summertime was called Mungo Jerry. Um, that's what we went out and do gigs as and one thing or another but when I came back from a, a, a lengthy tour it was almost two months of the Far East Australia New Zealand Japan Hong Kong all this all this kind of stuff um, the keyboard player Colin Earl who is uh, the brother of Roger Earl uh, the drummer of Foghat and Paul King the banjo player they decided that they were going to have a new singer in, and um Nobody thought it was a good idea uh, because I wrote the songs and I was the front man and I was the singer and all this kind of stuff. And uh, they were going to get this guy in called Dave Lambert who actually ended up writing part of the union. I don't know if you know a band called Straubs out in uh, in the USA. A keyboard player from the Straubs was Rick Waitman. And, you know, Rick Waitman ended up um, being a keyboard player with Yes. Oh, yeah. Uh, their most iconic recordings. And um, the guys from the record company, the management, they said, well, what if you go out to do a gig? And the promoter says, where's Mungo? Because by this time, everyone was calling me Mungo. So uh, I was christened Mungo Jerry, the artist performer, and Ray Dorsett, the songwriter, composer. But obviously people like yourself and a lot of other people in the press, they've got pretty good knowledge of the original the lineup that that actually recorded that particular first album and and in the summertime and uh, even on Wikipedia it says like Ray Dorsett was the front man of Mungo Jerry there's always changing lineups but it's not the case I'm Mungo Jerry the artist performer and that enabled me to explore all the kinds of genres of music that I like or indulge myself with because it's like most people you might enjoy a steak or you might enjoy fish or what but you don't want to have the same thing all the time mm-hmm. you, you you want to enjoy the things that you like to enjoy and I'm I'm, I'm the only thing that limits me is the fact that uh, I I really I dislike things that have been made in a, in a, pre, a premeditated fashion. You know, I've, I've actually recorded things myself because I've been asked to do so by various entities, including the record company. But I like everything that's the natural. Uh, I'm a, I'm a kind of guy that's been brought up on all things organic and that is where the music is and um forgive me if i'm talking too much and interrupt me and tell me to shut up if i talk too much no, but sir. Uh, I, could, I could carry on talking a long time but <laughs> shall i let you ask me another question <laughs> well i i love to listen and uh I'm, I'm happy to to listen but i do have some questions and one of those questions would be for somebody who really wants to listen to the catalog of what you've done Mm-hmm. You were mentioning variety. Some days you might want a salad. Some days you might want steak. Some some days you might want fish. When you look at the Mungo Jerry catalog and you go listening around, you're going to hear a lot of different kinds of things. 
So with that said, is it possible to describe Mungo Jerry music? Yeah, I can describe it really good. And that is Mungo Jerry music. <laughs> Your own genre. But what else can I say? Yeah, well, yeah, well, what? Yeah, but really, there's, there's no good music and there's no bad music. You either like it or you don't. Yeah. And it's as simple as that. Okay. If it sounds right, it is right. There's a lot of stuff I don't like, but then there's a lot of stuff that's been really, really successful, made a lot of money. It's made a lot of people happy and I really don't like it. I don't listen to it, but then there's a, but I'm, I'm uh, I, I mean, I like rockabilly. I like blues. I like rural blues. I like soul. I like funk. I like jazz, swing, all kinds of stuff. But I don't like, I'll tell you one thing that I just don't like, and I'm, I don't really want to upset a lot of people, but all this X Factor stuff and this Britain's got talent or USA's got talent. The problem with all this is you get singers that have got fantastic timber to their voices. They, they, they sound good, but unfortunately with all these TV programs, they've got singing coaches. And the singing coaches try and get everyone to sing in the same way, in the same manner, in the same style. So it all sounds the same to me. And, all, and the songs, is an overuse of, the misuse of technology. Mis, misuse of technology is fucking up the whole world. Sorry, I better not, I better not swear. I don't want to say that. So excuse my French. Misuse of technology is messing up the whole world. And as you can see, why, what, what's happened to us at the moment it's probably a misuse of technology that's caused this pandemic and everything else and all the pollution that we've got. We've got plastic in the oceans, plastic in the snow, drowning in a sea of waste, and it's not getting any better. And everybody wants your money. The media, to me, have promoted the celebrity lifestyle and the rock and roll lifestyle to such a degree, only because they want to sell their periodicals or their newspapers or whatever to get advertising revenue. And they don't care about the state of the nation. It's a, it's a typical state in the, in, the, in the UK. And I spend a lot of time in, in Europe. And it's, it's, it's found itself all around the world. And, you know, I like music because I just like music. And it's a good hobby to have. And it wasn't my ambition to go out and become a full-time member of the music business. It just happened that I wrote a song. It went to number one. So I was working in a research laboratory for Timex, who's part of the United States Time Corporation. And my ambition was well, I was going to have my own like research laboratory and doing electronics and mechanical engineering and all that kind of stuff. But I like music as a hobby. And there you go. I was number one. And next week, I had to say to my boss, can I take the afternoon off work? And he says, why? And I thought, well, I've got to go and do Top of the Pops on BBC TV. And that was it. And and this, and this then you start to think, I'd never been out of the country before. And you start to think, people that didn't want to, wouldn't give me the time of the day that was upstairs, if you like. It was, ah, oh, hi, Ray, you know, oh, what's, how's it going, man? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We want to, everyone wants to be your friend. Hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and this is often the case with politicians. They court people that are attached to that kind of fame. A lot of, a lot of people make a lot of money and they can sit quietly behind whatever the screens and enjoy it. But other, some people, they just want that celebrity status. They want to be known. It's terrible. It's, a, it's, a, it's really, really sick. And it sounds as though I'm complaining, but I am. But, you can carry on asking me another question because <laughs> I don't want to sound too I don't want to sound too arrogant, but you know you ask me about musical genres and and that's it. It's a, and I've given you quite a, a background to a simple answer. Well, you were mentioning having a number one. Would you say that success can be something that's hard to handle? Excess or suck? Did you say success? <laughs> success, yes. Success. How do you? How do you? Yeah. Well, how do you? Describe, how would you catalogue or evaluate success? Well, I would say success in the music business would be demand, interest from people, because it's so hard for artists. But don't you think success is an individual, is something that, that's up to the individual? What if they think it's successful? Yeah, the onlooker 
will see success as a different way to the person that they think has got success. True. For me, as success is if you're trying to drill a hole through a wall and you can't get through, you're not, you haven't been successful. But if you get through that wall or if you, if you manage to open a safe and take all the money out, you've been successful in, in doing that. <laughs> and if I, if I set out to have a number one record and, uh, and it went to number one, I would say I was being, uh, that was being successful, but I, I didn't seek to that. The only the success, what I say is success is being happy mm. and being content with your own life and the people around you and being healthy. You know, so there's more, there's more to life than making money, even though we all need money. I was brought up with the wrong ideas. You know, my mother used to say the root, money is the root of all evil. And I didn't, and it was rude to talk about money. And I, and, and, and that, it didn't do me any good, but it's only in, in the recent years, in my old age, if you like, and uh, you say, it's not the love of money. Money is not the root of all evil. It's the love of money that's the root of all evil. And greed, jealousy, honor, all these kind of, all these terms that are used for people, these are the, these are the things that cause conflict hmm. in the nations around the world. You know, it could be, you know, people have disagreements about religion, they have disagreements about, you know, all kinds of stuff. And but conflict actually sells, so that's why the soap the soap operas on TV soaps and all this kind of stuff. It's always based on conflict, isn't it? Because people like to watch people, other people arguing and fighting. True, very true. So there you go. That's my answer to that one. Well, you said that you define success as being happy. Why do you think happy? No, it's an individual. Yeah, oh, look, I got you. it's like. like did, did you read? Um, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Mechanics. I did not know. Do you know the Do you, do you know the book Zen and the Art of Yeah. I don't know. Do you know this? No. Okay. Well, it came out about 1970. Define quality. There's something. You, you, how can you define quality? And it's the same way defining success. It's for the individual to decide what success is, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, how would how would you define happiness? This is something else. It's for that person that is happy, they can say they're happy or they're not happy. Yeah? It's not for me to define happiness. It's for the it's for the individual to decide whether they're happy or they're not happy. I can't tell you how to be happy, can I? You might be happy drinking a bottle of bourbon and jack or a bottle of Jack Daniels and Coke every day. <laughs> So that might make you content and make you happy. You won't be happy after a few months of doing it because you'd be on your back. Right. With all the different kinds of sound that one can hear in Mungo Jerry, I'm hoping you can tell us about the bands, the, the singers, the artists that you would say has had the biggest influence on you. Yeah, there's loads of them. Isn't that, there's no one artist. I mean, when I was young, when I was a young kid, right, I mean, it wasn't just a question of what things sounded like. I mean, I was I was uh, influenced just as much as, like, the kid next door, Every, like, everybody, you know. So when Elvis Presley came on the scene, you know, he, he, he obviously looked good, he moved well, he made brilliant records. I mean, when you think that Hound Dog, it wasn't like a one take, but it sounds as though it was, like, Bang, he did it in one take. But I don't know, I don't know, 40 or 50, I don't know how many takes, but it sounds, it sounds as though it was done spontaneously. Yeah, and they've captured a the magic in that performance, however it was done. And, it, and, and the Scotty Moore guitar solo on that is absolutely phenomenal. That's how an electric guitar or an amplified guitar should sound to me. It sounds like it came from outer space. It was such a great sound. Now, I try if I tried to sing Hound Dog and make it sound convincing, I can't do it. No one could do it. I mean, that guy, the, the, the girl, the lady that did it, was it? Um, I can't remember her name now. Big Mama Thornton. Big Mama Thornton. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, I was going to say May. Was, this, was her name May? Was it Big Mama May? Was it May Thornton? M A E. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So I mean, yeah, it's it's good, but I mean that was fantastic, and then. Um, Bill Haley. I mean, this, the press in the UK, down about in America, they always gave, they they gave Bill Haley a kind of a bad press in a sense because he was older and, and and a little bit chubby, 
but he had the most phenomenal band. I mean, he had this Rudy Pompelli, he had, you know, the guitar players, all the stuff, the rhythm and the groove. And, you know, I met, a, I met his biographer when I was in New York and he gave me a book. And it was so interesting because I think one afternoon they recorded on a cinema stage, you know, something like, I think it was, uh, I don't know if it's Don't Knock the Rock or whatever. See you later, alligator. They recorded about three or four hits all in one go, all live, you know. Hmm. And they captured that magic. Flash Domino, it's another one. Captured the magic in the studio. One or two microphones. They played it all all together. Then you get other things, you know. You get Otis Redding going in there and having a go at doing, say, his version of Satisfaction. All all spontaneously, he captured the magic. Marvin Gaye, he goes in there, does I heard it through. The... No one can go in there and copy Marvin Gaye's performance of I heard it through the grapevine. But then, then Credence did it, yeah, and and they didn't try and, and what's his name, uh, the singer, or, or whatever his name, I can't remember his name, he didn't try and sing it like Marvin Gaye, he did it in, 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 in John Fogerty, he did it in, in his own way, and it sounds fantastic, it's got a groove, yeah? Yeah. It's not yeah. like, you, uh, look, I've slagged someone off now, you, you go and listen to Bruno Mars, Uptown Funk, yeah? How many people involved in the writing of that track? Brilliant, slick video. All the colours, all the dancing, fantastic. Not a note wrong on the record. You listen to it for a while, and it drives you mad because it's been. It's got no groove to it. It's got no feel to it. Yeah. Same as that happy. The happy by well, what's his name? The you know uh, happy and oh, whatever. Yeah. It's yeah. <laughs> it's the same. It's the same thing. Okay, you listen to it a bit longer, but then it it gets tiring. But yeah. all the stuff that's made all organically that was captured a performance. Anyone can go in the studio and get what you say everything perfectly in time and perfectly perfect sounds, great dynamics and all this kind of stuff. But it's music is an art form. And art is about conveying that the, 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 the producer of the art conveys their emotion or an emotion to the viewer or the listener. And you get this in a movie, you get it in, in paintings, you get it in literature, you get it in music. I listen to a lot of classical music, I don't know anything about it. But you imagine what those guys could do, Mozart and Beethoven, they 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 visualize in their in their head they what every part of that orchestra was gonna play and wrote it down with the dynamics and the tempo changes and everything. This is now. That's a talent. That's a that's a gift. And this is. You tell me what's happening today in the music industry. The music business. It's all about. All it is. It used to be money for plastic. In the eighties, yeah, late seventies. To me, some a lot of the music. I mean, I like some of the punk stuff. The garage American and UK whatever garage rock. This was great. No, no pretense. They just played it. But when the press start to play up all the antics of the people that were involved in, like the Sex Pistols, like I have to swear, I have to throw up everywhere, and all these, all these heavy metal guys, they got to have ten belts on to play. A, you know, do you have? Do you need to wear ten belts and have fifteen million tattoos and piercings to play a rock song? <laughs> yeah, you don't know, do you? No, you don't need. But people thought you had to do it. But there's some great bands out, but the, the the image is actually to draw attention to the music. But sometimes the image overtakes the music. Yeah, very true. So, I mean, I mean, I could be a fan. That's a lot of stuff like Kiss, right? I mean, this thing about it's a great thing what they did in a sense, you know, with the image and selling the show. But it could be a circus. I like the circus. I like pantomimes. You get great performers, but they're not they're not known as as the stars or whatever are they? It's it's all there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff I can talk for hours about all this kind of stuff, and I don't want you to think that I'm or I don't want the listeners to think that I'm running everybody down, but there's a certain psychological factor that makes people get up on stage and perform, and you've got on the one hand you've got people that get up there because they want to give something to the audience. It's a therapeutic experience for the audience to be involved. But then again, even if it's just on the image and it's a rock thing and everyone's got their hands in the air and they're clapping and jumping up and down 
that is a therapeutic experience because they're getting away from whatever problems they have in their everyday life or the problems they've had for that particular day. And for that hour or two hours or what is that, that their heroes are on stage, they are actually escaping from the reality of the life or any problems they have, and they're enjoying themselves, which is good. It's like going to church. You know, it's like you, you, you go to church, you preacher, he's all jumping around, they're playing the gospel music. Yeah, it's great. Like you see Aretha Franklin and stuff in, in the Blues Brothers. This is, this is great. But on the other hand, you do get people that think that they're God's gift and they're owed something and they get on stage and they want everyone to say how great they are and they, they might dress up and they, they need the public adulation because they're insecure in everyday life. Hmm. And I've seen people like that. And when they don't become, as you say, successful, right, in inverted commas, which means they're not selling or they're not getting the adulation that they want from the public, right, not the critics, because very often underground type of artists like Nick Cave, not Nick, well, I won't say Nick Cave because he's still with us. He's, he's still alive. But there's a lot of, a lot of you know, the, you know, the 27 club that you probably hear of. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 The tabloid newspapers and a lot of the rock press, they praise these these people. But there's nothing glamorous about ODN and when you're 27, is it? Like, no. Amy Whitehouse, Jim Morrison. I could I could name you a whole bunch of people. I mean, Jim Morrison. He, I'm a big, 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 big Doors fan. I love everything the Doors. That's one of the bands that I can listen to everything they've done. But I'm the same with the Ramones, would you believe, right? I've got everything the Ramones ever did. I, I did, yeah, probably everything the Beatles, but not everything the Stones, but the Stones had a big influence on me because they introduced me more to rhythm and blues. And and uh, another another branch of rock and roll, they developed their own style. But that the Rolling Stones, to me, are a band that works as a band. As soon as they go off and do their things individually, it's not worth a light. It doesn't work. And I think most people would probably agree with me. Mm. <laughs> Even though Mick Jagger is a phenomenal... I mean, the Stones are performance-wise. If you like that sort of thing, great. You didn't need lasers. You didn't need loads of lights. You didn't need smoke. You didn't need bombs. Same like, like Elvis. You see those um, performances he did, you know, in, in about 55 or wherever it was, 56, when he's out there playing on, on the on the back of a truck or whatever. It all it all just it all just happens you know, as as, 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 as to the excitement of the music with the way he kinda of moved around and everything. But then again, I I used to jump around and try and act like before I used to sit down because I thought it seems more serious. Because I'm playing jug band, skipple, rural blues, to me it was more serious. I'm done I'm talking and I'm using some of the phrases that Led Betty said and John Lee Hooker said and all that kind of stuff. It's not 100% original. I just put my own take on it. But then when I found myself standing up, I thought, well, you've got to move around and do this. You know, I started doing the James Brown thing, pretending you've been got electric shock on stage and get the roadies to carry her off and Bruce Springsteen's done all that. They've all done this, yeah? But when I went to see Van Morrison, when he stopped jumping around and he's got this absolutely brilliant, I just opened his mouth and this brilliant voice comes out. Fantastic. Now, I should have realized that. When I met Roy Orbison, I did a TV show in Manchester in, in England with Roy Orbison. He just stood there and opened his mouth and he sounds like Roy Orbison. And I could have, it's good because I had a talk with him because I had a pair of Roy Orbison's trousers, right? Uh, you know, if I say trousers, that's American, you say pants, aren't you, in the States? Some of us say trousers, uh, <laughs> but pants, yeah. Yeah, anyway. Yeah, he was over in the UK and in, in London, in the Carnaby Street or something, and he ordered some pants here to be made, and they, he didn't like them how they were built. And uh, we, I, me and my band, this is like pre Mungo, he was friendly with this American guy that was working in one of these, in the tailors in the shop, whatever it was, I don't know what one, Lord John, or I don't know what it was. And he used to come up with the stuff that, that, that hadn't been picked up or had been thrown out, and we used to share it out. I had a load of it. It was good, so it was great. <laughs> they didn't even fit me good, but I was so pleased to have a pair of Royals and Shrouders, so I used to wear them to work. And, uh, and it was great to talk to him. And later on, funny enough, I never, I never met Roy, Roy Alberson again, but I met his wife, Barbara. And Barbara Alberson is actually comes from the same city in Germany where my wife comes from. She's, she's Bielefeld. 
and uh, and I met her a couple of times, and um, and it, it was great because Royal when you go back to the Roy Orbison stuff, I mean, he wrote some great, great tune, great rock and roll things. I mean, have you have you ever heard Roy Orbison's version of Claudette? You know the song Claudette that the Everly Brothers wrote. Oh yeah, have you heard that I, on I on, the, on the Sun? You know Sun Records. They, there's a collection of stuff that was done and outtakes and things. And he's on there just his voice of guitar. And when he goes to the middle A section, he makes a mistake. And he goes, oh, crap. And then he carries <laughs> on playing. And he's on the recording. He's fantastic. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, well, I, I don't know. I've, I've probably got off the, uh, off the ball from where you were talking about. So bring me, bring me back where, I, where we were. <laughs> well, you do bring up a good point there. And uh, you're mentioning, like, the imperfection. Uh, that can that can happen. Some people call it imperfection. Some people would call it reality. Mm-hmm. When I'm hearing a recording, then you know, you mentioned some of these pop songs like uh, the Bruno Mars or the Farrells Happy and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. A lot of times, that stuff to me, it sounds like it's too perfect. It's too like there's something that I think I enjoy about about like you were saying, Roy Orbison, like. This is reality. This is what happened. Hmm. You agree? Hundred percent. Hundred percent, man. I hundred percent agree with you. But then, and when you say it sounds too perfect, that means it's not perfect, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. 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 There's a in the in the summertime. Like, let's go back. We go back to in the summertime because it's the most known and the most played summer song in the world. Definitely, it's, it's, it's known in the northern hemisphere, southern hemisphere. It, it's male, female, covered about five generations now. It's a celebration of life lyrically. It's got no chorus. In the summertime is the first line of the first verse. There's no middle eight section, and that's all it is. And it only comes once in a song because on the record it was too short, so I made it longer. By just joining the beginning on to the end, right? So I'm saying in the summertime when the weather is high, high, high pressure, high pressure means the rain's not coming down. You can stretch right up, put your arms in the end, touch the sky, feeling of euphoria. So lyrically, that kind of works, celebration of life. But when people hear it, they think it's a, what you call a 12 bar. They think there's three chords in there. But basically there are. But because I use my little finger and hold down the notes at strange places, it gives it another slant. And because when Colin L played the piano on it, he was very limited. He was a, he was a big Jerry Lewis fan on the piano. And I love Jerry Lewis. So this is why he sings and everything. And, and Colin was also an Otis. Have you heard of Otis Span? Oh, yeah. Yeah. He was an Otis Span fan as well. He was, he could only play dung, 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 on, that's all he could do on, on, the, on his left hand, right? Or da, dung, 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 that's all he could do. So whatever he played, he would try, end up doing that. So when I've done TV shows and they've given me the house band to play in the summertime, they don't bother to learn it properly because they think, oh, it's only three chords and it sounds crap. It sounds really rubbish. And, the, and it's very, very difficult for a piano player to go, Ding, 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 on the left hand, but on the right hand, have the independence to go, ding, 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 ding. It's a totally different groove. So what I did, I've, I've mixed up a whole mishmash of genres within the framework played in the key of E using three basic chords E, A, and B. And it should be a B7, but I'm playing an E6, an A6, or whatever, I'm playing different things. And it misses up, and sometimes Colin made a note, made a play, would play a minor third when he should have been playing like a major or a six. And it, and the, and the clash adds to it. And I made the mistake as I played the guitar with my fingers when I played the electric guitar. So I caught my finger on two strings at once, and I've only ever been able to do that once again. But the magic was, but Barry Murray, who's a friend of mine, and listened to it, produ- being doing the producer, I didn't know much without producing records in, he said, that sounds great. And we left it at that. Yeah, you know, obviously I put the stamp on, you know, the stomp on it because there was no drums. I put, I used mouth percussion, 
first number one record to have a beatbox on it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, use, I used a cabasa. I used uh, an acoustic guitar and go, do, 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 to get that groove. And a double bass, like a stand-up bass instead of an electric bass, which Mike Cole played fantastically. And then Paul King's playing the banjo. I don't know what he played on banjo, but it adds to it, see? And he's playing ding ding ding. He's, he's, so he's playing a lot of rhythm, over, but an amalgam of various rhythms and, and notes all put together makes for something that sounds very, very interesting. It catches your ear. So even if, even technically, a well-studied musician will say that's not correct, but when you hear it all as, as a whole, as, as it's pleasing to the ears, then it works. And that's, and that's what happened. And it worked. I mean, the record went straight into the charts at number 13 after about three or four days of sales. So nobody, it wasn't, it wasn't on the strength of the image of the band. It was only on going on TV and doing, and seeing the image of how we looked as well, that we looked, looked like a bunch of uh, crazy, uh, like, I don't know, it was like, <laughs> I say well-groomed hippies. It wasn't that. It was, I don't know what it was. It was a mixture of a lot of stuff that was going on at that particular time, throwback from the, from the 60s going into the 70s. And um, it kind of took off all around the world. And it, and it goes on and on and on to this day. But that doesn't make me... You know, a lot of artists, they have... A, their first record is a major, major, major hit. And they they dumb it down. Because they they, they want to go... It's like Jeff Beck. Jeff Beck, and Jeff Beck is a phenomenal guitar player. And he used to see him in his band, in a band called The Tridents. Saw him when he was... Uh, with Rod Stewart, uh, the Jeff Beck group with Rod Stewart singing. And he's great. He's a really brilliant guitar player, but overdoes it playing all these silly, crazy, funny noises and this stuff, you know, which might be impress other musicians, but the general public, they don't take. But he had this major, massive, massive hit with a song, do you know, High Ho Silver Lining? Do you know that? Oh, yeah. Pop song? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But he would never play it live. It's mm. like, it's like Thin Lizzy. I, I, I got friendly with um, Phil Linnett because uh, when I went over to Ireland in 1970, they they supported us at a festival. And then Phil Linnett kind of spoke to me the next time I met him and started talking about all this stuff. And I played at Bristol University and he was and Phil Linnett played Whiskey in the Jar and he didn't play the bass. He played the, he played rhythm guitar and he had this um, a Perspex guitar. And um, I can't remember the name of the guitar player. And he played this tune. Got da 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 Great. Lovely record, lovely. But then after, after they got the other hits like Boys Are Back in Town, they wouldn't play it anymore. But then, then I was with Tony Visconti. You know, have you heard of Tony Visconti, the producer? Mm, yeah, I, I, no, I don't know. Do you know T-Rex? No, I don't know that one. T-Rex, Mark Bolan. You know, get it on. And they're massive loads of like, big glam rock thing. He, he massive in Europe and in, in England. Well, yeah, we must have had some hits in America. I don't know. Anyway, Tony Visconti produced T-Rex. I mean, produced David Bowie. And and I was in the studio with him, and I said, oh, it's great, you know, this album that you did with Thin Lizzy called Live and Dangerous. It was a big album hit. It was a live album. He said, and he went, oh, yeah. He said, but the only thing live on it is the audience. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, hey, I learned something from that. It was great. I'm going to go and start messing around with my live recordings. Right, you put you get the you get the audience, and then you re- record everything over the top of it. <laughs> you know, there's so many, there's so many tricks. People don't realise that there's this. It's, it's, it's a weird state of affairs, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, that song in the summertime. I want to tell all the the listeners out there. The first time that we spoke on the phone, you called and. You asked, is that Paul? And I said, yes. And then you said, this is. And you started, <laughs> you started to hum. Da, 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 da. That yeah. brought just such a huge smile to my face. Oh, good. <laughs> I'll never get oh, over that fun. thrill. <laughs> oh, I'm glad you were happy about that, man. That's good. <laughs> I mean, we need something to make us happy these days, don't we? I just got things they're not getting any better at the moment. <laughs> That's true. It's getting worse in the UK. It's getting worse. I've got... I've got I've got news channels on like 24-7 here, Russian news, I've got French news, I've got Al Jazeera, I've got um, CNN, all the Sky and all this kind of stuff. And 
they've all got a, a you know similar take on what's going on at the moment, and um, it's just it's just it's just, it's, just, it's a scare. We're in a scary, scary, you know, it's scary. It's, it's scary for the economics of the entertainment business or in the industry, whatever you like to call it. Definitely. But uh, Netflix, I'm not advertising Netflix, but they're not giving anything to me. But I will say that uh, I'm getting a lot out of the stuff that they've got. And all these documentaries and these, all these series. Do you know what I just watched? What's that? I never believe it. Oh, do you know uh, Cobra Kai? Oh, yeah. I've heard about this. I've watched the whole, I think it was aimed at teenagers or whatever. I don't know. Well, I've watched the, I've watched the whole three series. And I just go on today and watch documentaries again. And then I put this other thing on. Have you heard of um, Resurrection, Etrugal? I haven't heard of that. I think I think I think it's Turkish. That all the history, you know, of um, the the night, the temp, the Knights of Templar, and uh, the Crusaders, and all this kind of stuff, and Islam, and you know, and I started watching it a couple of years ago. And I turned it back on. I realised I'd watched eight. Oh, I'm on the 88th episode, <laughs> and I complained to people about watching soap, soap opera, you know, soaps. <laughs> then yet I found myself. This is a kind of a soap because it's set in the ancient times, and you're learning a lot about ancient history. I've had it on there, but I can't. I can't watch things day and night. Oh, a lot of, I got into watching a lot of music documentaries, and that is interesting as well. Like about, like Dr. Gray and um, Jimmy Iovine. And stuff like this. So, uh, but by the way, you asked me about other people that have been influenced by. Of course, I, I mean I can't. Little Richard is one of my all-time singing heroes and performers. And Chuck Berry and James Brown, you know, they've all added something like their outlook on life, their attitude, their mentality, how they drove the band, how they drove the rhythm, how they drove the show. Because of all the corruption in the music business, the music industry, and I don't know, do you say industry or do you say the business? Mm, I say both, but usually industry. Yeah, because industry is a term that's been coined by people in the entertainment world. When when filmmakers, anything to do with movies, they say, oh, the industry. Same with music, oh, the industry. But it's a business at the end of the day, isn't it? And when I, when I found out, it was, it was about towards the middle, mid to late seventies, me being a very, very naive person and believing everything that I was told, I used to just go along with the flow. But then it came to my knowledge that the whole music industry was full of corruption. It was certainly, you know, buy, records were being bought into the charts. Backhanders were given holidays, all sort of stuff. And I thought, hey, this is no, oh, this is crazy. I don't want to, I just want to be an indie guy. You got to think, like when Sam Phillips did the Sun label, I mean, he did it because he just did it himself in the studio. And he recorded stuff and stuck it out. You know, same with um, Norman Petty, me being a mad, 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 mad Buddy Holly fan. You know, appreciating what Buddy Holly did for rockabilly, Tex-Mex sound, songs, pop songs, how he played the guitar. Oh, this guy was phenomenal. But in those days, the people used to just go and make the stuff. And then the majors, they weren't, they weren't record companies. They were hardware manufacturers. RCA, the MI, they used to make machines. They made radar. They made radios. They made TVs. Yeah. Universal made movies. Sony, the only reason Sony got into the music business was because they invented the DAT machine and people didn't want them to do it. They were, they were cloning, digitally cloning the masters and they tried to put them out of business. So uh, Sony started buying up catalog and then they took over the movie movie industry and uh, and the music industry as well, to a degree. And you see, these days, there's only about four major companies in the world. You've got Sony, you've got Universal, you've got Warner and you've got BMG. BMG Chrysalis. Yeah, and BMG is more is a strange company, a private company. I, mean, I mixed up like Bertelsmann, German firm, but they're all the same. And people say, "Oh, I went, I went to, uh, I went to um, Universal, and I spoke to someone. I, I, I spoke to Universal on the phone. I spoke to 
Columbia on the phone. You don't speak to you don't speak to Columbia on the phone. You speak to somebody that's employed by that massive multinational conglomerate mm. that will tell you anything that they want in order for them to keep their job and get paid. And most people in those in those kind of companies, they will try and push out whoever is above them so they can go into their place. <laughs> and if, have you ever heard of the Peter Principle? I think I've heard of this. Tell us what it is. Peter Principle. Well, basically. I mean, it's a management book. It was, it was, it was uh, really aimed at managers, management stuff. But it's, but it's in all, it's the same in all walks of life. The Peter principle is everybody rises to their own level of incompetence. <laughs> Which is true, isn't it? Yeah, that's very true. Think about it. And we all, and we all rise to our own level of incompetence. You've got to know when to stop. And if you want to get somewhere in life. Right, whether you want to accumulate wealth or you want to accumulate loads of women or you want to, re- whatever you want to do, whatever you want to do, yeah, you have to think of a way to get there. And it's like if, you, if I if I plan the journey to go from um, Los Angeles to San Francisco, I would I would work out the route I want to take, you know, and I like the route like going up like Santa Barbara, Big Sur, yeah, but you have to know which route you're going to take. So you have to make a plan. And if you want to get where you're going to go, sometimes you can't go straight there. You have to go backwards a bit. You have to go sideways, and then you go up. You're climbing a mountain. You don't go straight from the bottom to the top. You go up a bit, sideways, down, around. And, yeah? And that's it's life. If you, if you regard your life as being in tune with nature, because we're like all is one and one is all, as, as uh, Alistair Crowley said, uh, and um, we are all part of the same thing. We all come out of the earth. We're all related to each other. We're all as soon as you die, another life begins. You know the the, the decomposition. You know you, you've got to bear all that in mind. And when you start messing around with nature, you can't. Nature will always come out on top. And if you think of nature, you think of. The music of nature is the music of the birds, of the trees being blown in the wind, the water, you know, the waves on the sea, on, on the, uh, the, stuff, the stuff on the rivers, and all this kind. Of, this is uh, this is this is real music, and it comes. That's why there was meditation music and all the stuff. You know, it's, they try and make it sound as real and as organic as possible. Yeah, and uh, and this is this is something I believe, and you probably you find this in life, but people are not happy because. They think, oh, if I haven't got, the, if I haven't got a car, if I haven't got a new Mercedes like the guy next door's got, and I've got a, uh, I don't know, I've got a, uh, a Kia, and I should have had a Mercedes, then you think, oh, I'm done very good. But it's bullshit, man. You don't need that. And in fact, why, why don't they start making cars again in the states? So all those American cars, I love American cars from the 40s, 50s, 60s, 30s. That they're, uh, you know, they're works of art. I love them. They're definitely works of art. Hmm. But now, oh, well, I'm going to get off the. Uh, you know what? I'm going to get off the uh, off the case here. So you just tell me to shut up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm enjoying all the things that you have to say. Oh, good. That's all right. I'm glad you are. The song in the summertime has been covered by so many different people. A lot of people can remember seeing it in a, a certain movie like in wedding crashers it's it's kind of prominent here in the united states in the southeast we have a a very popular and much loved grocery store Publix, and they had one of the best commercials ever and they used in the summertime which it it just Mm -hmm. it fit the commercial so what what, what was it what was the name of Publix with an x public Publix, yes sir public supermarkets how long ago was that then? I have to make sure I got I got a deal. I make sure it was a deal. Oh, I bet they. I'm sure they paid. But um, this wasn't. I did one for the. the uh, I think the, the the one that was big in the states was it was uh, must have been twenty. I think it's twenty nineteen. Was a was a sandwich. It was in sandwiches. I think I remember that commercial too. Again, showing how prevalent the song is. I'm going to write this public down. I'll have to ask my my company, uh, the guy that runs it, that does it. This was in the 90s. Is it P-U-B-L-I-X? 
P-U-B-L-I-X, yes. It was this commercial that had all these little kids, and they're playing in the yard. They're having a little summer party. Oh, check this out. <laughs> it was... It was P-U-B-L-I-X. Yes, yep. Obviously, you, you probably realise that there's a lot of uh, been a lot of ripoffs and lots it. of stuff here because then because the trouble is in the summertime it's so um, it's so familiar. It's, it's like happy birthday. People think that it's in the public domain, right? But it's it not. not. But it's like we've had, we've had things in Europe like, like cars. You know, you press your horn on your car and it plays in the summertime. Ice cream coming around your houses. Ding and playing in bells in the summertime, <laughs> all this kind of stuff. Happy birthday! I, I, people used to think happy birthday was in the public domain, but that song was well. You probably know that. Yeah. It, was, it was. It was called "Good Morning to You," wasn't it? it was, that was the thing. Very old song. Um, yeah. What has been the most surprising place you have seen one of your songs? The most surprising and the most weirdest thing in the world ever, and you would never believe it, and it came from India. I think it was from India. And it was a whole host of honeybees buzzing, and I don't know if they buzzed how they did it, or they just sampled all the bees and, and, and played the tune in it, but they're buzzing, and they're, and they're going, buzz, 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 buzz. it's a whole seven-inch vinyl record of bees <laughs> in the summertime, which I think is really crazy. Hmm. Interesting. Well, interesting is madness, <laughs> if you ask me. But as well, I don't mind if I got paid. I don't mind. <laughs> well, who do you think did the best version of one of your songs when somebody covered you? Ah, hmm. That's a good question, isn't it? That's a good question. Well, I think we're the best version. I, I have to again, again say that it's not going to be the best. It's going to be the one that I liked the most. Right. Yeah. And I don't know why it is. I mean, I, I mean obviously Shaggy, Shaggy's version it went to number one. That was a good version, and the one that Billy Idol singing was a good version with David with on the Doshirinian's album Blood of the Snake, with Slash playing the guitar on it. So all that kind of stuff and the Smashing Pumpkins doing it as an encore and all this kind of stuff. But the um, when In the Summertime was first released, there was an instrumental version by a band. I don't know if they came from Jamaica or they sounded like they were a London band because a lot of reggae and, and like dance, dub music, dance or stuff came out of um, out of London. And it was by the music, it's an instrumental, instrumental version by the Music Doctors. And I already, always, always like that. I'll have to look that up. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a version on YouTube where they've just got the record going around on the turntable with the tune coming out. Not so long ago, actually, someone sent me a, a link to another kind of reggae-type version, which was good. I liked it. I'll tell you what, I was in uh, Austria, and in this um, really, like a gala, the you know, posh thing and I was in the in the breakfast room with my wife and these two girls came along with you know harp a harp harp oh yeah not not blues harps but harps and I, I don't know if they knew I was there or what and they sat down and playing this music then suddenly they started playing in the summertime on with these harps <laughs> it sounded amazing wow instrumental versions it sounded so lovely but I like this I like the sound of harps and Celtic harps I like the sound of all like real instruments and things with gut strings I think that's why um, Stradivarius violins sound so good. It's because they're made out of, like, there's a lot of craftsmanship went in there and everything is organic. Like, the lacquer is probably made from, so, so uh, lacquer that's, uh, that, or varnish, what you put on stuff, it actually comes from insects. I think it comes from flight of, I don't know, some sort of lava and all that. And then when you use wood, uh, proper wood glue that's made from fish or bone, animal bones, and the, the more organic and more natural substances you use to make an instrument, the better it will sound. Mm. And that's why I can't get my head around. I was in the House of Guitars in Los Angeles, right? And I was I looked in this glass cabinet, and there was a Fender Stratocaster, black Fender Stratocaster guitar in the cabinet, and it was all burnt. Like the end where someone put cigarettes 
on the uh, on the machine head and stuff, and it apparently it belonged to Eric Clapton, and it was nine hundred ninety eight thousand dollars. And to me, to me, an electric guitar really is just a lump piece of wood with some metal strings on it and some magnets and a coil on it. It's not. <laughs> Musicians pay a fortune. Oh, have you ever been to the Nam show in uh, in LA? I have not. Where Anaheim? You never been there? No, no, I haven't gone. I've seen videos of of those events. Oh, yeah, I was there on the first iconic Nam jam, and I went for several years. And um, it makes some great people. It's a wonderful place to meet people. But um, you get amplifiers that cost a fortune to get a perfect sound. And you get guitars that have been that cost a fortune because they're supposed to be made in a certain way, and they've all been made in America, and haven't come from Mexico or Taiwan or Japan or China, like normally a Gibson or or or, Strat or a Fender. And then they get all these guitar pedals to fuck the sound up completely to make it sound like we're all distorted. You might as well have started, and that's how it was when when Ray Davis from the Kinks recorded. You really got me. He just had an old amplifier with broken speakers in it, and that's how they got the distortion. When Jimi Hendrix got all that those great sounds, he didn't use them masses of stuff. He used like two distortion pedals going through a small amplifier, and it's mic'd up in the studio. You don't need to do that. It's just it's so weird how people are. It's just I can't understand it. <laughs> Somebody, I I got a Marshall. I, I, my I've got a Marshall amplifier that I got when I was out. I think it's a 1963 Marshall Lamb. I use it on in the summertime. I still got it, right? And um, in that shop, I think they want. I think they had one similar one, not such a good condition as mine. I think it was about sixty-five thousand dollars. I thought, ah, crazy! This is crazy. It's, it's really crazy. And that was without the speakers. I've got. I, I, okay, I, I look after it and keep it in my studio. But um, to me, it's it's, it's, it's kind of it's kind of madness. And uh, you can get there's been there's been like I had a massive hit in Europe with a song called Hello Nadine, and I and it's all there's only me on it. I play, I played I played everything on it apart from I think I think I played everything apart from the piano actually. Yeah, as far as I can remember. Anyway, it was a massive hit, and I used the bass guitar on there that I bought second hand for eleven pounds. <laughs> And I've, I've and I, I often use it. I've started using it again now. One of um, one of my sons got it refurbished for me, and I didn't even want it want it refurbished because it sounds unique. <laughs> and if it sounds like right, if it sounds right, it is right. Yeah. And it doesn't matter if you spend a fortune or whatever. If it sometimes it's like Lead Belly. Lead Belly played a, a stellar twelve string guitar, and they used to get those Stella 12-string guitars, or Stella guitars, in, uh, I don't know how to say, Walmart or somewhere. Yeah, and They were cheap. People, These old blues guys, they didn't have the money to go and buy expensive instruments. They bought all this, what they could afford, and yet, and they, they made these iconic iconic recordings on them. <laughs> it's unbelievable. I met, have you heard of Stephen Crossman? Yeah, oh yeah. Yes, I met Stephen Crossman in Rome, and he told me he went out and bought, he found himself a Stella guitar. So when I went and trying to find myself a stellar guitar, I found one, but I found it to be unplayable. So I gave up. But Ledbury did an absolutely brilliant job playing it. Like to me, king of the twelve string guitar players. Yeah, that, that's uh, that's my little take on on musical instrument. I could go on and on and on and on and on about that as well. But again, I wish you would tell me to stop talking. <laughs> well, I'll tell you something. I'm curious about. Is it true that the great Bob Dylan used to use your song in his sound checks? Yeah, I've got a recording. got four different versions. And a, an album came out, a bootleg album called um, Important Words. And there's uh, four different versions in the summertime. In there. And he's, he's singing the same words. And then later on, he wrote a song called In the Summertime himself. Yeah. And... Uh, all I know about it is that it's nothing like my song, but Ronnie Wood is playing guitar on it. And then on Bob Dylan's radio show that he has for New York, he played in the summertime on there, and he said such good things about it. And he said that the name Munger Jerry comes from the book 
Old Possum's Book of, well, I don't know if he's Old Possum's Book, but it's kind of Old Possum's Book of Practical Cats by T.S. Eliot. Yeah, Mungo Jerry is a cat in the, in the book. And it, but Mungo Jerry is a, it's M-U-N-G-O-J-E-R-R-I-E and not the J-E-R-R-Y like you would get in Tom and Jerry, the cartoon characters. And I've got Mungo Jerry, two separate words. Mungo Jerry is all one word. And he talks about this and talks about coming from the cats. And then he says, well, I know what, what I would prefer to listen to any place in the summertime. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, what a compliment. Because I, when I did a version, I did a version, I did a reggae version of Knocking on Heaven's Door. There was a big hit in Southern Africa. And I've got a great 12-inch dub version of it that, I, that, that my friend Tim Green mixed down. And when Bob Bob Dylan heard this version of, in the, of Knocking on Heaven's Door, I don't even got the correct words. My, I got a report back, and he said it was the best cover version of it that he'd heard at that particular time. Wow. <laughs> and, and that's another thing, you see, because I'm a massive, massive admirer of Bob Dylan. And that's probably because Bob Dylan, obviously, he was a massive admirer of Woody Guthrie. And obviously, you can tell, listen to the, the vocal style. Um, but then, when um, so unfortunately, a load of my vinyl got stolen. And when Bob Dylan um, made the album, he, he covered a lot of country songs. I can't remember what album was what the album was called now. But he, he sang a lot of stuff that he liked. I mean, why not? I mean, if you like, if, it's like me. I could say, right, I like, um, I like Irving Berlin, or I like. I don't know, Cole Porter or something, and I get some of these songs and I, I you know, make an album of cover versions just because I like them, something I want to do. But I, I, I probably wouldn't do it. But I don't want to be scared of the fact that some, if, it's good that Bob Dylan likes a particular stuff and it doesn't fit in with what a rock journalist was, would, would, you know, was just what to write about. Why not own up to what you like? You yeah. like it? You like it? I was, I got brought up on all kinds of music. And as I say, there was no limit. It, it was, when I, when I played for fun, I started playing for fun when I was, well, I got my first guitar when I was 10 years old for Christmas. So that's about three, I, my, I was born in March. So after about three months, I'd learn to play, a, learn what, what to do with, with, with a chord. Um, so I got this, some, so the music that we had around those times was called Skiffle. And the purveyor of Skiffle in, in the UK was Lonnie Donegan. And Lonnie Donegan had a number one hit with a song called Rock Iron and Lion, which obviously, you know, by, by Lead Belly and a lot of other people. And, um, there's a big hit in America. And the thing about Lonnie Donegan was, as a Skiffle group, the Skiffle group was kind of basically a kind of like, a, do you know what spasm music is? No, I don't know. Uh, it's a bit like jug band. Spasm music is uh, the music, I probably play new like rent party music. See what? Yeah, there might only be one. In, there might only be one legitimate instrument in the house. It could be a piano. Or it might not even be a piano. It might just be a guitar. So the percussion would be played on um, on a suitcase or a cardboard box, and um, the bass would be. They obviously they would not normally. They would either use a jug, but then they would call it jug band music, or they would use a a, a box in England. I think I don't know if it's the same in America. You know what a tea chest is. Now, tea chest bases. Mm, no, I don't know. Yeah, broom, a, a, wood, a wooden broom handle, yeah, with one piece of string tied to one end and the other end tied to the box. And you put it on the, onto the box and the, 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 the tea chest is a box that you put back in. People, obviously, tea chest is what you put tea in, but people use them when they're moving house to wrap all their glassware and their crockery and stuff up in a newspaper or anything else, or the ornaments, and put it all in, all in the box and move it around. And obviously, if it's empty, it, it would resonate when you got a bit of string on it. So you go, doom, 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 doom. So it didn't even matter if you didn't get the right note, as long as you got the groove and the rhythm, because a lot of people can't, a lot of people don't understand, can't even hear the notes of a bass, especially when it's deep. They just get the feeling from it and the rhythm and the groove. You see, so a rent, a spasm music video, like a rent party. So when it was cold in the winter, the the, uh, the the family or the guy or the wife or the woman, they, they had these rent parties. They'd charge an entrance fee to come into the house. And then you'd have a whole load of bootleg whiskey or illicit, you know, homemade wine and stuff. And people would jump around and dance to this music in in the house, all, all being drunk on whatever, this 
everything homemade, moonshine, whatever, and they would have fun, they'd make music, and the sweat and all the energy that the people dispersed from their dancing and jumping up and having fun warmed up the apartment. <laughs> Did you know about all this? Interesting. <laughs> Didn't you know about this? No, right. no. And this is where the skiffle music came from. So in England, so the skiffle became a T-chess bass, a guitar, and there wouldn't normally be a banjo in it, or two, or two acoustic guitars. And that was it. And um, there'd be no percussion. But Lonnie Donegan's band, he had an electric guitar player, and he played the acoustic guitar, but he'd also been a banjo player for, um, I think it was... Uh, Chris Barber's, I think it was Chris Barber's jazz band. And um, he started playing the, like the music that he knew in the, in the break. As they, they would do a set and then there'd be a 20-minute break. So, so Lonnie would take over. And he, so he, and he was playing like Leadbelly songs, gospel songs, Woody Guthrie songs, whatever. He, and and, and mess around with them. That's, that was an influence on me. I just did a, a thing for a, a radio where they asked me to... Uh, Suggest a couple of 78 RPM. You know, you know, Shellac records, 78 10 inch records, yeah? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. They asked me to suggest a couple to play. And I, well, one of them was the live recording called Gambling Man that was recorded at the London Palladium live, Sunday night around the Palladium show. And it was a big, big, big hit. And it's phenomenal. It's got an electric guitar on it, which is not normal for Skiffle. But, um, well, I, maybe this is interesting for your listeners or yourself if you want to go do a bit more research on that kind of music. But funny enough, have you heard of a book? Now, I can't remember who wrote it, and I've given it away to one of my colleagues. The book is called How the Beatles Destroyed Rock and Roll. Do you know this one? I've heard of this book. I've not read it. Unfortunately, there's no mention of skiffle or junk band music in that book. And it's a whole history of American music. But those those genres are not mentioned. And I really think it's important to go back and study the history of junk band music. Because um, like New Orleans jazz and all this traditional kind of music, it kind of came out of that. Yeah. There's some, there's some great... So, do you know, like, like Memphis... Have you heard of the Memphis junk band? Yeah, yeah. And picking any junk band, all that. It's really interesting. Interesting stuff. It's a bit like the uh, the early... The early, I, I was a, I really always liked watching Popeye cartoons, it's, and it's like those early Popeye cartoons with olive oil and and stuff. So that that sort of music that they had in those um, in those cartoons, those two D black and white cartoons. Interesting stuff. There's so much music to explore. <laughs> That's for sure. Mm. I want all the listeners out there, if they want to check out MongoJerry.com. It's M-U-N-G-O-J-E-R-R-Y. I very much enjoyed this opportunity. I hope we get a chance to speak again. I always allow the guest just to say whatever they want to anyone who's tuned in. So in well, closing, I'll tell you what I'm going to say. What's that? Oh, yeah, go on, yeah, go on. In closing, what would you say to our, our listeners? I'd say, you know, when I, at the end of every live show that I've done for probably about the fast past 45 years, maybe, nearly 50 years, I say, good night, God bless. I want you to all get home safely, take care, be kind to children, old people, and animals. Try and treat everybody else the way you want to treat, be treated yourself. Have fun in the sun. Beautiful. That's, that's, yeah, something. That's what I normally say. Something, but I, I might say good night and God bless last. But that's it. That's it. You know. And I think that's that's. Uh, what else can you say? I'll tell you what, Paul. I'd be great if you. I don't know if it's a bit. I know I've spoken for a long, long time, and I really, really appreciate you taking the time to listen to me and not tell me to shut up. <laughs> and but it's very, very nice, and it's a great. It, I mean, it's a great honour. For you, for you to be so interested in my past or my history or my take on things, because we haven't we haven't just spoken about music. We spoke. We've actually covered a bit, a, a 
some life things, haven't we? Oh, this yeah. has been 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 very interesting. And and what I would like to do is have another talk with you and ask you some questions. I would be honoured about how you got involved in the music, how you got to become a broadcaster, and how you became a music fan, and what, anything else that you've done, or you know, you're, or if, I don't know if you write or if you're a journalist, or I don't know what you do. Obviously, is this your full-time occupation or whatever? And also, we have to know how we can all get through the pandemic and stay on stay on top of things. Which, which we're definitely not being on top of things at the moment. But that's, uh, we have to look at that. But if, you, if you're interested, I'd love to, uh, I'd love to have that conversation with you. I am so honored that you would, you would think to do that, and I, I would be honored to do that. Oh, really? Oh, well, God yeah. bless you. God bless you. <laughs> okay. Well, look, it's been lovely to talk to you, and, um, You've got my email address. I'll make arrangements so I can talk to you and, and, and record you too. All right. Sounds great. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Well, you take care and um, we'll, we'll stay safe and well. Yes, okay? sir. Good night and God bless. Thanks very much. Yeah. yeah. God bless you. Bye. 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 Goodbye.